Hey, everyone. This is Jeff Epstein with Citizens Media TV and People Conversations, and I am here with an old friend that I've known for exactly one day of my life. Um, but we are now very close friends, and she is running again. Um, so let's just get right into it. Hello, Kara Strano-Taylor from Hi, Pennsylvania's 5th District. It is so good to hear from you again. It's so good to talk with you. It's, it, it takes me back. So we had one day that we knew each other. We spent one day together. And I saw you in the hotel. I guess it was a hotel lobby. It was in or America. It was, a, it was at a DFA training. And so we were like on whatever, the fourth floor or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and my roommate, Rich, oh, his name skips my mind because I know another Rich. So miss, Rich, was, my roommate, was talking to you, or my delegate roommate. So all of us were Bernie delegates. And he was talking to you, and I was talking to – I was filming somebody who was live streaming and filming somebody else. And I hear him talking to you, and I slowly walk over to you, and then I, you're just this, this incredibly energetic thing, and I just, like, <laughs> moth to a flame. And I just, I just kept my camera on you for, like, the next eight hours. And we spent the entire, entire day together. Well, what, looking back on that day, so, you know, both Bernie delegates were at the National Convention in Philadelphia – um, I think all of us, even though drawn by different motivations, shared, right, the commonality of wanting to see a good, responsive government. Um, and we meet, and the, the rest of the day was, was pretty planned out, right? I was going to get back to the hotel and then get on the shuttles and go back to the arena um, for more of the same. And I think it was Tuesday. Was it a Tuesday about Wednesday. Week? No, it was, it was Wednesday. Wednesday. Huh. So... As the day progressed, right, I'm with this, this clutch of, of people that share my righteous indignation about the state of affairs. And when we got off, because we all went back toward the convention um, together, and there was, I mean, you remember this, there was a, you know, con- convention delegates go left, and everybody else, right, the dregs go right. And you were going right, and you were going up the set of steps. And I'm like, where are you going? We're going to Roosevelt Park where, you know, they have a, a bunch of Bernie delegates are kind of camping out, we're, we're going here. And it's kind of veered right and went up the steps. And what a day. What a day. I mean, with hundreds of people, you know, that traveled all over the country. I can't imagine the kind of money they had to raise and invest to make that happen. Spending the day talking about what mattered to them. And, just, and, and what was most striking was how desperate they were for information about what was happening inside the convention. Yeah, let me, let me get a little background on that, because I was actually involved in the group that, that made that happen. And so, so it was called Philly FYI, which was just basically the group that was organizing outside activities, and they held a lot of the permits. So they had, you know, they had power in a way. And so they they got the stage and they they organized the protesters, Bernie supporters, camping out in that park across the street, FDR Park, right across the street from the convention. So I got a call from from one of my four, I wasn't on Philly FYI, I, I left the group, but I was still friends with them. And one of them called me and said, "We want delegates to come to the park because the communication between delegates and the and the supporters, the protesters." is incredibly difficult and rumors are starting to be created worrying about you know suppression and horrible things happening in the convention so their idea was was to have delegates go and talk 
to them directly, to relieve them of these rumors, to answer questions. And so I decided to skip out because Tuesday was the walkout. Tuesday is when, when uh, 700 Bernie delegates walked out. Yeah. So, like, a lot of us sort of lost faith in the process at that point, or at least came to terms with it. And so Wednesday night, I personally decided I'm not going to the convention. I'm going to be with my people. And then I, all these other, you and all these other people, you know, I guess just chose to do that along with me. So we were among, well, it might have at least 15, maybe 20 Bernie delegates that went to the stage to talk to a crowd of maybe 300 to 400 supporters that were just desperate for information and to be, you know, to have relief from all these rumors that happened. And I just remember all this crying in the audience, and it was just, it was easily, easily the most magical moment of the week for me, for me, and let alone the talking afterwards. You know, it's funny, as you tell that, as we were going to the convention, right, as we were on the train going, I don't know if I had really made my mind up to go up to the park until the set of stairs and the sign was present. What set of stairs? Like in the park? No, when we got off the train. Uh, oh, oh, and we were talking. We were talking to that politician. Yeah, from, from Georgia. He was from Atlanta. Right, I forgot. I yeah, yeah. I don't. It, it was. It was. It was very in the moment. Like, do I go left? Do I go right? And I went right, and I'm so glad I did. And we were there until. I mean, I remember walking back to the train, holding my shoes. I was. I walked back barefoot, um, mm-hmm. talking to this. You know woman from Kansas about what her life was like, and it was late. I mean, it was late. We were there for hours, and yep. the conversations that we had with folks, and they, it was so far removed from any of the conversations that I had had with people in the Democratic Party writ large during my two runs for Congress. It was, it was night and day. And it, it was, it was, it was raw truth. It was a lot yep. of suffering, but it was all honesty. It was yep. like the most cleansing, refreshing experience, especially from across the street where everything is fine. Don't, you know, you know, unity, everything is fine. But you go across the street and there's all this crying and suffering. And, and it just felt like it's just the most honest moment. It was just the most honest experience. So Thursday, you'll appreciate this. So Thursday, um, so after after that night happened, and I get back, and everybody had listened to the speeches, and I wasn't even there. I did feel badly that I didn't give my delegate pass to some of my friends that were there that might have wanted to go. Right. A little bit of remorse there. Um, but, you know. Right, yeah, right. So the um, luncheon, right, like, <laughs> they had their, had their luncheons together, right? So... The whole week, the chairman of our party didn't even acknowledge that anyone was running for Congress. And the, the, the tagline was, we're going to send, you know, we're going to win the White House, we're going to win the Senate, and we're going to flip our state house from red to blue, completely omitting the fact that there were people running for Congress. Oh, and this wait. Week, yeah, go, go on. I'm, I'm, you're bringing back a memory. Go on. Yeah, this is the mantra. And it was going, I mean, Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon. Um, so some of the people that were with me, you know, called him out on that. And his response was, 
Um, if you get me a list of their names, I might read them out. This was on Wednesday morning. Okay. And he, he read them and completely butchered the names of all of the women. And there were three women in the room. Like, three of us were in the room. And one of them, her name is Erin. Like, really, how do you destroy that name? But he did. So from persistent badgering and after the experience we had at FDR Park, um, Thursday morning, we cut, you know, some people that I knew really pushed on it to get, a, you know, a slot to speak. So they gave me a slot to speak Thursday luncheon. Now, mind you, this is the last meal the delegation is going to have together. Mm-hmm. And it coincidentally coincided with the Lady Gaga concert that every delegate had free tickets to. So the chairman of my party purposefully moved me a slot to speak in front of an, 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 like what he thought was going to be an empty room. And I stood up to speak, and I, I shared this, the, the podium with the two other women who were in the room running. And we have this on film. And the speech I gave, and it was brief, but it was pissed, was <laughs> if you, you, know, you ignore rural Pennsylvania to your peril. We are out there, we're knocking on doors, and there are, you know, we're knocking on Democrats' doors and they're wearing Trump t-shirts. You have to invest in rural Pennsylvania or it's going to turn red. And the chairman of my party looked at me and smirked. He smirked at me. Mm -hmm. So that moment for me was, it was so clear that the people that were in the position of authority that could have had some some voice or, you know, role in shifting the trajectory of what we were going to see happen in November had no interest in hearing any voices that disagreed with their worldview. Like, mm-hmm. it was absolutely clear. So, you know, going home from that convention, and of course the bus tour went across the state, it, I mean, what happened in November, the fact that Pennsylvania went red for the first time in God knows how long, it mm-hmm. wasn't really a surprise to me. No. It wasn't. No, of course not. Yeah. And, and then, you know, continuing to be active, because I am, I'm the, I was the, the chair of my party, or I was at the time, um, I went to the next state committee meeting, and I was really expecting there to be some sort of mea culpa, some sort of, okay, we see this, we see that we missed it, how, you know, we're going to double down and commit to getting it right, and they didn't. See, yeah, no, you, no, because you and, or at least what you're saying, and so many other people, you, as a, your, your, your assumption is that they're good faith actors who actually care about the people. And I therefore... Don't, I don't know if they're, if they're acting in bad faith or... It's not, or that they don't, it's not that they don't care, it's that they care more about their power, and which requires them to cater to their private donors. I so therefore, they're convinced that this is the only way. It is the only way. Right. It well, is right. the only way. That, right. well, of, co- of course, the only way that they can stay in power. So therefore, they're desperately hanging on to it. Because if we get in power they're going to lose their donations, and they would rather have a Republican than lose their donations. That's the whole Trump thing. Well, and I don't even know if any of them – I mean, I think most of the, if we want to call them the, the political elite, I don't think they would ever say we, we, we'd rather have a Republican. I just think they seriously poo-poo 
the idea that, you know, a grassroots movement with small donors could ever actually win. No, now, I don't. You, I, I strongly disagree. I strongly disagree. I strongly disagree. They're, no, they're, of course, they're not going to say that they would rather have a Republican, but they would rather have a Republican than a true progressive because a progressive will take away their donations, their private donations, will take away money in politics that they depend on to exist. A Republican won't. A Republican will, I will make – a Republican will – I mean, what are we talking about here? The only difference between Republicans and Democrats of this type is – you know, Republicans do these horrible things and they're more honest about it. Democrats will do these horrible things. We'll put, we'll put nice, we'll, but Democrats will do these nice things, but we'll have we love gay people and black people stickers on it. You know, they'll, you know, they both bomb countries, but at least the Democrat bombs have really nice pride, gay pride stickers on it. You know, that kind of thing. So they would rather have a Republican than have real progressives because that's what, that's what stops the money train. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. Um, I don't know if I went that extra step. I don't know if I ever thought about it to the extra step, right, because as a congressional candidate trying to, to run, um, I mean, and the system is, is the way that it has always worked is they, you know, they say to you, don't raise an obscene amount of money on your own, and the people that are able to do that must be quality, and they rise to the top. And then they run, and they win or they lose. But you know, we're electing a group of adept fundraisers who have absolutely no idea how to govern, and then being surprised when they can't. That's the system. I don't think they've ever thought to put the work in to go find people. Because like, I'm not the only person that has you know, the ideas that the same ideas. There's tons of people. I've got people in every single congressional district who see it as it lies. As opposed to, as as opposed to how they wish us to see it, um, you know, being in this district is really, it's a really fascinating juxtaposition because the district itself is rural and very poor, and all white, right? There's a very nominal um, minority population in this district. Yet, the largest county is Center County, and inside Center County is State College, which is a liberal bubble. Mm-hmm. Right, highly educated liberal bubble, and they just can't understand how this district goes blue, goes red. Just can't understand it. So, what is roughly the breakdown of Democrat and Republican voters in your district? Because where I happen, I happen. Well, not I, not I'm not personally in it, but I'm, I'm the district that I report on is almost fifty fifty Republican Democrat. It's like this real. Is not. This is fifty four. Um, 54, probably 45, and then the independents from the middle. So it has a nice okay. chunk, about 8 or 9% independents. Um, and it's more Republican, though, right? That's it is really Republican, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there was a significant Democratic <coughs> to Donald Trump across the district. Now, this is a district that the Democrats voted for Bernie in the primary. That's awesome. That's and, awesome. Then, and then Trump... <coughs> One and handily, which is why Trump won. <laughs> I, I, oh my I, God. I believe that. I know. I mean, I personally know burners that voted for him, and um, you know whether you know whenever people would hear me say that, they would just be shocked. Like, 
how could they do that? They're you know, the positions, you know, so are so incongruous. How could they? And I'm like, they weren't voting. They were voting for a person. They were they, they believed in this mission, and they were on the train for this outsider mentality that was going to go shake things yeah. up in Washington. And Bernie, you know, the fact that he had 30 years in Washington was still fighting the fight from the inside that resonated with people. Mm-hmm. And Trump was the ultimate outsider. And then we yep. chose the insider. And then we were surprised when people, you know, didn't parse the two. And yeah. it's, 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 been, it's been a really hard, it's just been really tough to see. And I don't think our national politics are doing us any favors. Either. Well, you you really taught me something that night, that night on when we were talking to people on the lawn, which I have all on tape, or at least a lot of it on tape. Um, when you said, I, I don't know if I asked you or whatever it was, but it came up of, you said that there was a requirement that you have to make phone calls for four hours a day. I think it was four hours. Oh, they prefer you to do it for ten. Okay, so a significant, I mean, not a significant, most, much of your day is spent on the phone fundraising. And I was right. like, what do, you do? what do you do with that? And you said you don't do it. You just won't do it. You refuse to do it. And, you know, you, you, said, you said just a moment ago, a few minutes ago, of, you know, you have to raise a lot of money, and if you can raise a lot of money, by definition, you're a good politician. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not exactly what you said, but, it's, it's, mm-hmm. you know. And I know it doesn't, it's not totally practical, but something has to change so it is practical of you don't fundraise. You just don't. What you do is you inspire people to fundraise for you. You go out and you spend 100% of your time with the people and you do whatever it takes to understand what they want and be passionate for them and help them through stuff and, you know, be an activist for them and get arrested with them or whatever it is, and you inspire people to fundraise. For you, you don't spend a moment on the phone because if you spend a moment on the phone, you're not with the people, and that's what to me politics should be. That's what politics should be. I, you know, I started journalism because I see. I, I actually, I, I really started it that weekend. I mean, I, I got taste of it before, but that that week of the convention with taping eight hours a day, and I actually taped I think ten hours on the day I met you. Journalism to me is the primary tool of being a politician. That's how you give a voice to those who don't have a voice. That's how you understand what the people in your district who normally wouldn't be heard, how you know what they want. Because you go out and you ask them what they want and you, and you publicize it and you create a community of people who hear other people that, oh, I didn't, you know, there's other people that want what I want and angry like I'm angry and all that stuff. So, I, I just that's to me is what politics should be. It's not practical in, in significant senses, right? Given our given our world, but that's what politics should be. You don't fundraise. Period. You inspire people to fundraise for you. And, that, so, and that's what you that's what you taught me that yeah. night. That's yeah. that's what you yeah. taught me that night. Well, and and because I was never going to do that again, right? Because I I'm. I'm never doing that again. The, the, the process itself is such an effective demoralizer that it, it starts to break down the fiber of who you are as you do it. So 
honestly, by the time that, you know, the, the people that are successful at raising money that way um, are so used to selling out and saying what people want to hear that by the time you get to Washington, I think you're already bought. Do you know what I mean? It, 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 it forces you to do even more. Yeah. It, you but have to you get there, up to them. It, it, by the time you get there, it's just it's it's what it's what is expected. Um, you know, I, I mean, there were days on the phone. So so here's the um, here's a little a little behind the scenes that most people don't know. The the um, formula that most fundraisers go by is that for every ten calls you make, you connect with two, and one might give you money. And that one might give you five dollars, or they might give you five thousand four hundred dollars. Right? Okay. So, when's the last time someone called called you and you gave them five hundred dollars? Um, let me think. Right, never. Um, <laughs> right, never. I mean, never, never. never. <laughs> so, firstly, let's identify who we're calling. Right? Because if they're expecting you to call ten people and you answer and one gives, you're generally calling people that have the ability to give five hundred dollars on a cold call, mm-hmm. which. For most people that I know, it's their rent, right? That's right. their rent. And then, and, then, and then you get stuck in this cycle of you're dependent on people who can afford $500. Right. And now you're starting to let go of the people who can't afford $500. Right. So now you keep on working your way up. Well, you don't even hear the people that can't afford $500 because you're on exactly. the phone all day, exactly. right, pitching to these people. And you have quotas. Right? They, they, you you got to make this many calls. you got to log this many hours. And if you don't, you don't mean it. You're not committed. It's not, you don't want it badly enough. Even $500 takes you away from 60% of the people? Right. Right. And here's the thing. If I just worked my job and gave 10% of what I earned, I would, I mean, there were days you could make these calls and, and raise $50. I would be better served having worked all day or been out on the trail all day and, and contributed $50 from my, from my income than I would have doing this, right? It's absolute. And at the end of the day, like, literally, you're willing, like, I will give you my kidney if you will just say yes so I can get off the phone so I don't have to do this anymore. It's horrible. It's horrible. It, it, and instead, you should spend that time ah, so let helping me a family helping a family that really needs it, can't afford it, that you're truly sacrificing yourself, and you use that and you publicize it. That's, you know, that's where journalism comes in. You publicize it. You give, they give you, what they can give you is the permission to, public, to be public about it. Right. And then you inspire other people, and then that creates a community of people who can't afford it but are inspired, and you know, they, they work for you. They inspire other people. Like that, it's got to start from a completely different level. I'm sorry. Go on. So let me tell you how this came to be, right? So, um, you know, got through November, and for me, the worst day after the election, and this is so bizarre that, that it mattered so much to me, but uh, when Gwen Eiffel passed away. Do you know who Gwen Eiffel is? Uh, yeah. Hour? She was the, yeah. When, when, did, when, did, when she, she passed away a week after the election. Okay. And none of I mean, we didn't know she was sick. Like, that wasn't something that was public, and she had done the freaking debate she moderated a debate four months before that that she had she was suffering from cancer, and wow. I watched Gwen Eiffel. She was my news source. That's who I trusted. 
she she gave it to me straight. And when she passed away without any warning, I mean, you know, what I mean? we didn't know she was ill. I turned off the television. I turned off the television, and it stayed off probably until right before Christmas. I just couldn't. I got a subscription to the Guardian, and I renewed my subscription to the New York Times, and that was where I got my news because I just couldn't bear to watch the nonsense that was being spewed out of every every news channel. So January comes. I took my kids down to the Women's March. And in Washington? I was in Washington. I went down. Oh, and wow. coincidentally, you were there the day before. I watched some of your footage. Oh, right. You yeah, I remember we the had, inauguration. Yeah, we had some. Yeah, you, you, I think you, you commented or something. Yeah, and I was like, damn it, I'm leaving. <laughs> well, you, you missed quite a show. Um, the highlight, I mean, it was an amazing experience. But Ethan, my Ethan, who was aged at the time, his head <laughs> is precisely the level of everybody's tushy, right? And it was so crowded that, like, you had to weave your way through, and he would be right behind me, and all I would hear him saying, now, mind you, he's an eight-year-old boy, right? But, 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 but. My, my eight-year-old boy's middle name is Ethan. Right, okay, so can you imagine your eight-year-old weaving through a sea of, sea of people, and all he sees are people's rear ends, right? <laughs> so literally, Ethan was like, but, but, but. It was very funny. Um, it was very oh, funny. Oh, oh, I didn't. Oh, okay, now I got right? Now I caught it. <laughs> eight, and that's what he was doing, like. <laughs> It would have been funnier if he used the A word, but, you know, he's a good kid, so he didn't. But it was just, it was, it was, what an experience. Mm -hmm. So um, the local paper puts a picture of us on the front page. And that next day, my ex-husband called me because he was a Trump supporter. And he said, did you seriously take our kids to the Women's March in Washington, D.C.? Right, I did. (laughs) Right, I did. He's like, Okay. And you guys get along really well. Really well. Really, really well. well, right? But he just had no – he didn't know. And, and mind you, his, his, his uh, you know, closeness to politics is the opposite of my own. Uh-huh. Like, the fact that he votes still surprises me. <laughs> um, you know, but he voted for Trump. So, you know, it was, he, was, he was shocked to see it. And, of course, we framed it and it hangs on the wall. <laughs> but um, – but – you know, coming out of the Women's March and watching this, this flow of righteous indignation really left me with a concern that we were not going to be effective in changing the narrative this year, that a lot of people were going to protest, but if that didn't, con- you know, convert to signing up people to vote, getting them engaged in their politics, and actually winning elections, it, not, it wasn't going to matter. So as much as it was cathartic, I came home from Washington thinking, I don't know if this is going to actually turn into what it needs to turn into to matter. Well, this this weekend is is at least in Philly is the Women's March. Oh, I'm, well, I'm, co- I'm going to be covering it this weekend. I, I just committed to covering it today. That I'm going to be cover- the going on the train ride and talking to people on the train ride, and then there's like twenty, forty thousand people committed to going in Philly. I don't know where else it's going to be. Well, but, we're having there's one in State College. And I'm, I'm one of the speakers. I'm one of the speakers. Oh, so excellent. I hope it's going to be great. And I don't have it. to – oh, it'll be filmed. I'm certain it will. Good. And I don't have good. to travel four and a half hours, and, which, is, which is good. Um, so, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I wanted to say that I'm actually very interested in the Women's March from the point of view of, you know, all things bad did not start when Trump got in the office. Right. And what, what is the Women's March really about? What is the Women's March really about? What is it protesting? 
what is what is the goals? What is it, what are they really after? Like the, the 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 concept of resist. The concept of resist basically implies that everything bad started when Trump came into office. Right. And from my point of from my point of view, it, that is so far from the case, and it, and it implies it implies that you are trying to cure the the symptom and not the disease. It's and the classic so, case of of the the jilted spouse, right? Whose whose spouse cheated, being angry at the person they cheated with. Really? Wait. Yeah. Explain. Explain. Well, I mean, practice divorce law for almost twenty years, and you will learn that affairs are not the problem, right? The the the, the marriage was struggling beforehand, and the parties couldn't figure out a way to work it out. And the affair is usually the culmination of a lot of problems, right? It mm-hmm. doesn't, you know, people in happy, intact, strong marriages don't usually cheat unless, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they're a narcissistic personality that just wants to hurt people. But by the mm-hmm. time an affair happens, you know, most people, if they're really introspective about it, can look back and see that there were struggles in, in the marriage that weren't resolved, you know, sometimes years beforehand. Of course. So Donald Trump is the culmination of a couple decades of people in a couple is generous, but yeah, go on. In the heartland of America, in rural communities that feel utterly and absolutely left behind by policies that served more metropolitan areas. Now, whether that's true or not true, that is certainly how they feel. And you know so Trump is just it was it was the culmination of something. It wasn't the beginning of it. So I will be intrigued to know if the people that you talk to have committed to being to doing more than what they did last year. Because going to marches or protesting at your congressman's office and showing up to vote, if that's all you do, is not enough. And I'm going to be really interested to see if 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 they're engaging more practically to actually elect alternatives to what they have now. And I hate to break the news, but Trump doesn't write law. So as much as we hate, you know, as much as people hate Trump and think he's terrible, the law is still being crafted in the House. You would have stopped this nonsense. That's where it has to stop. Like, I mean, I, I, just, I just, I think it's misdirected. And I think it's a distraction. And I think a lot of us are distracted by it and distracted away from doing the work that needs to happen, which is knocking on doors, talking to people on their doorsteps about what matters to them, you know, getting them registered, getting them engaged, getting them answers to their questions when they have them, getting them informed about how these policies affect them, not just demonizing the president. Right. Because I don't think that serves anybody. Um, if you talk to the folks in the liberal bubble of state college, they want to demonize Trump. Well, it's not necessarily something wrong with that. It's just that that's all there is. It's just how much you do it, and you know. Right. <clears throat> but but yeah, I, I pretty much agree. So in February, early February, there was a, there was a call on my schedule of this fella who wanted to call and talk to me about running for Congress. So I call him back. And I must have spent the first 11 minutes telling him all the reasons why he should run for Congress. And he finally interrupts me, because apparently I was on a tear. Um, 
And he said, no, no, I, I have no desire to run for Congress, but I want to talk to you about running for Congress, about me helping you run for Congress. And I started laughing. I started laughing. I mean, I, it was the best belly laugh I had had in a really long time. And he did ask me why that was so funny. And I said, well, let me tell you why that's so funny. Let me tell you all of the reasons why it can't work. We, I'm not doing it again. Not doing, you know, what's the definition of insanity? Doing something the same way over and over again, expecting a different expecting result. Expecting a different result. Right? So, and I, I mean, I don't know how long we were on the phone, but I told him every damn reason. And one of the big ones was this, this fundraising. And I don't think I really explained it too much, but at the end of the call, I was firmly expecting him to thank me for my time and, right, she's crazy. I'm never going to talk to her again. And he says to me instead, can I call you in a week when I've worked on some of these things? And at that point, I'm like, sure, sure, right, call me back. I'll give you seven more reasons why it won't work. And he called me back. He actually came to my office a week later. And he said, I, you know, I, I worked on these three things. I'd like to talk to you about the others. You know, would you consider running? And I said, no, 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 no. And he said, well, let me work on these things. And <laughs> I come back. And by late March, I wasn't saying no, but I wasn't saying yes. Okay. And by August, September, he had answered all of the reasons why we shouldn't. And one of the reasons, oh, I'm telling you, this guy is a retired um, administrator from Penn State. He used to work in research development. So he was the guy who found scientists' money. Wow. Right, NIH grants and things like that. And he okay. retired and um, watched the election, woke up the day after, realized he did not do enough. Right, mm-hmm. That was the epiphany that a lot of people had and decided that he was going to focus on the congressional scene and pulled up some, you know, my debates and some of the video and called me. Now, the work that he has done, I mean, he's, a, he's new to politics, but he's one of the most methodical people I have ever encountered in my life, um, but nimble also. So if he kind of puts a lot of work in going down path A, and then we suddenly realize we don't need to do that, he switches. Like there's no, he doesn't lament all the time that was spent. He just, uh-huh. okay, we're going to go to B. But the most telling moment was he had, you know, done his, done his research. He talked to every single person, I swear to God, that he knew or that knew me to see, you know, what's this lady about. And one of the people he talked to was an operative in the Democratic Party who explained to him about fundraising and cold calling and what you have to do. Right. And when he came down to my office, he said, tell me about this. So I tell him what it is. And he said, that is, the, that is just the most ridiculous use of time I have ever heard of in my life. If you're a good faith person, yeah. Well, right. I said, you're, you're absolutely right. It's horrible. It's terrible. And I will never do it again. And he said, why would anybody who respected you, asked you to. And I looked at him and saw him in a completely different light, right? So to people on the outside, it's a, they, they recognize that it is a strange form of moral torture. But if you're on the inside, it's like this rite of passage. And so I said, yeah, that's him, interesting. It was really interesting. How could anybody who respects someone Ask them to do that. What can you flush that out? Sit on the What's, phone for ten hours a day, trying. No, to no, 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 not not what to do, but why it's disrespectful. Because it is what? the most. 
the process is the most demoralizing experience. Um, I might ask you to edit this part out, okay? I, whatever, yeah, whatever you want. Absolutely. To death, it is the closest thing to prostitution that I, that I can ever imagine doing with my clothes on. The process uh, itself is absolutely fucking awful. You spend the day being berated, told that you're not doing enough and you need to talk more about this and why isn't this your issue? And if this were issue, maybe I'll give you money. You call me back later. Um, I don't give to politicians. You're not in the right district. So, I don't give right, money you know, you know what, this, I, I, I'll, I'll cut that. But this is but really that, – that, hold, hold on, hold on. This is – that's really powerful. It's horrible. So can you take a breath and – say it in a way that I don't have to cut because that's really good to hear that. Part of me doesn't want you to cut it because it's really honest. It just feels off color. So I don't know where you would be, you know, where this might be published, but I can't describe uh, it any more accurately than that. You're, 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 you're selling. And it gets to a point where Everybody's asking you to be something just a little bit different, and there's a point in time where you start to wonder, well, maybe I could. I could just, I could just, I could agree with them on this, even though it's against every policy I've ever had in my life. You know, because you only have to ask one time for five hundred dollars instead of five hundred times for one dollar. Right. And they might not, and they probably won't give it to you. Because let's remember. And if they do, then you now you're dependent mm -hmm. on. Now you're dependent on fulfilling what they want. Right. Which it, it's just, it's a cycle that takes you away from people at super speed. Right. From, from real people. For eight to ten hours a day, every single day, with someone with a, with a whiteboard marking how many calls you've made. I mean, but it's not just eight hours a day. It's not just eight hours a day. It's no. eight hours a day on the phone, and then the rest of your time has to be fulfilling Everything right. that you were asked while you were on the phone for eight hours, right. which takes you away from people. So you're right. spending almost 24 hours of your day catering to those people who give you this big money. Right. That's how the system is set up to work. Right. Yep. Right. And everybody who's won, that's what they do. Because I don't know of anybody else who has it yet. So think about it. 535 people sitting in D.C., every one of them has done this. Which brings me back to what politics should be. Right. Do not pick up the phone even one time Right. for this purpose. And you, you know go what? Out and you be with the people and you well, inspire them. Once we, once, I mean, because, you know, that came very late. That was probably in August. It was right before I agreed to say yes because I asked him, you know, we can't do this without money. So I appreciate the fact that you're going to find a new way to do this, but what is it, right? And, and it was about relationships. And it was about spending your time doing what you do and letting the team of us figure that out. It's exactly what you said. And, and I, you know, I honestly think it took running a couple times to meet the people that I needed to meet to do that. Um, I'm still, I, I'm so humbled by the fact that there's this team of people that are spending their days working on this, um, 
at this point, you know, donating their talent and their time to do it, which is remarkable, um, so that the phone calls that I do make are about reconnecting with people that I met on the trail, hearing about their life, what's going on with them, right? right. It's they're, they're real phone calls. They're, you know, they're sincere. How would exactly you Exactly talking. Exactly right. talking, yeah. Right. And not always being focused on, you know, begging. how much this person get. Yes, begging. Someone told me once that, you know, when you decide to run for office that dollar signs will start to appear above people's heads and you'll constantly be evaluating how much they can give. And I remember telling that person that I thought that was just such a cynical view and that's so horrible and I hope I never, I hope that never happens to me. And they laughed and said, well, then you won't get to Congress, right? Ha ha, you know, if you don't, if, if you don't make that rite of passage, then you'll never get there. And there were times where it happened and I hated myself for it. I hated it. This is not how you should be. That should not be a primary consideration when you're having a conversation with somebody. But that's what they that's what they try to mold you into. So this has been they, a complete Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, keep no, keep going. It's, it's just, just it's been, just Yeah. It's it's a completely different experience. Um I'm I'm one of a team as opposed to just being what, me. Tell me, yeah, tell me, like, the, the, you, you, this is your third time. This is my third, third time. So, like, how has your team grown from the first, okay, second, so, or third time? And, and, your fund, and your fundraising, too. How has it changed from the one, two, and three? Well, so Paul, um, who's managing this effort, um, built a steering committee of people from across the district, and we, you know, they help steer, you know, they help drive our direction, and they're all committed to giving. Um, and they all, you know, that, and so we had some seed money, um, and it was it wasn't a lot. I mean, they each committed to you know giving a thousand dollars, and some people it was it was a hard lift for them to do that, um, but it wasn't an arm twist, right? It was we believe in this and we're doing this, and from there we have people doing our social media. We have a senior advisor directing us on on you know where we're going and what we're doing. We have a scheduler. And we're building house parties, and we go, and I get to talk to people and be exactly who I am and tell them what I see and listen to what they see, and they contribute. It's how it's supposed to work. And what do you do in return? So they contribute. You talk to them, but what do you like do in return aside from promising that you'll do something when you get into office? I hear them. I really think it's the faith. It's the same reason that we gave money to Bernie. Yeah, just mm-hmm. bring back up what he said. We believe his words. We believe his words, right? And um, you know, I I don't I don't misrepresent the truth. You know, sometimes I can't tell people what they want to hear, and I tell them the truth. And some, you know, every now and then I run into people that that doesn't please, and that's okay. But I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change who I am for it. So generally, how how big has your team grown from over the past, or the, you know, the three campaigns? Well, mind you, the first two times I did it, I didn't have a team to speak of. I was doing it kind of on my own um, with lots of volunteers, but never an organization that when someone wrote in and said, hey, I want to help, that they were given something to do, uh-huh. right? Because running for Congress 
takes an organizational structure that every single body that wants to help lift is given something to lift. Uh-huh. We didn't have that before. So we had lots of people, oh, my God, so many people writing in saying, I want to help, and didn't have the infrastructure to be able to reach back out to them and say, okay, this is what you can do in your county. So that's that, that so probably It shows that you did a good job, that you've been doing a good job. Right. In, you your, know, in your previous campaigns, and you're, you know, that, that, you're, that you're reaching people. And it should be a lot faster in a just world, but you are reaching people. And I, I guess, uh, I always, you know, we didn't have a very large team. So I was trying to do a lot of things that I honestly didn't know how to do. Right? I don't know how to run a campaign. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make lit pieces. I don't know how to do a lot of that, um, and I kind of managed to, you know, find people that would help me do that before. Now we have people who know how to do that. Uh-huh. So it's a completely different experience, completely different experience. Um, and, and so much, I mean, it's, it's, it's better, but, you know, this, what I did before in my first two runs for Congress and what this is aren't very similar. But I think they were necessary to... And I think I gained credibility. You know, I kept showing up. What is what's that line? You know, ninety-eight percent of life is just showing up. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some some power to that. But it's it's exciting. It's still hard, but not doing anything wasn't an option. And there's two fellas actually running against me in the primary. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, 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 oh. I, I, I saw someone on Twitter, and I, I, you might remember, I, I tweeted it. What about Kara? That was before I think you announced, or at least I knew about it. Yeah, that's, that's a guy that's from State College, and State College <laughs> is the most rural place he's ever lived in his life. Philadelphia, and, born and raised in Philly, lived in New York City, lived in Los Angeles, and now lives in State College, and... And for I, you, it's the most liberal, and for him, it's the most... I know! Liberal. Like, for me, it's the, the, the mecca, right? I made it to state college and then came back yeah. home. So, yeah. I, you know, I find, that, I, I find that interesting, but, I mean, you know, the primary is what it is. I think primaries make candidates better candidates. Hey, you know? yeah, if, he's a, it, you, if, if it's a good candidate, then, then all the better, you know? The, the, the worst problem that you have is that... You, there's the, your voters have another good choice, then you know what can you do? That's you can't really complain about that. But uh, but I wanted to ask. So so does your larger campaign staff now? So mm-hmm. does that give? What does that give you more time to do? Or what's different between this time and last time as far as what you are able to do because of your staff? It gives me um, actually it gives me time to reflect on the work that we're doing, if that makes sense. Because when you're trying to do it all, right, there's 800 balls in the air, you really don't have time to think through any one of those decisions, right? And and it brings with it a constant sense of stress and fear that you're doing it wrong, right? I don't don't know how better to describe that. Mm -hmm. With this team, I'm one of a team, the decisions are made as a team, right? So, you know, deciding what we're going to spend money on or what the lit pieces look like or, what you know, the tone of the speech. Those are all team efforts. I have people that I can bounce that off of and, 
you know, we help draft different pieces. And, I mean, it's it allows me to to do it without a sense of panic attached to it. If that makes you have sense. more time. You have more time, and you have more expertise to lean on yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um, a very good friend of mine told me this funny little story that that really sums it up. You ready? So he was he's a, he's a manager. He runs he runs Democratic campaigns um, here and in Europe or liberal campaigns in Europe. And he was telling me a story that about 20 years ago, he signed on to help a guy who used to play college football about 20 years before run for a state, like, Senate office. And he was sitting him down and explaining to him the roles of all the people um, using a football metaphor, right? So your finance chairperson is your running back, and your communications person is your offensive line, and, you know, right? And, and the coach is the campaign manager. And the candidate looks at him and says, so I'm the quarterback, right? And the campaign manager starts to laugh and says, no, no. No, you're me. the football. You're the football. <laughs> <laughs> i never heard the story before. And I'm the football. And <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. <laughs> I have a team of people, uh-huh. right? I mean, who the hell wants to go out and play football alone and get the crap beat out of them by the offensive line? Mm-hmm. Like, there's, there's, there's no chance you can win. There's no chance the ball can be taken across the line that way. And this way, you know, I got this team of people that, you know, as long as I do what I need to do and I, I do that well and I, you know, do the work that's, that, that is my, my burden to carry, you know, the success that comes comes because this team of, mind you, volunteer experts. That's crucial. These are people with their handouts saying, pay me. They, they they deserve to be paid, and they will be paid, but they're in it to say the money we have we're saving to spend on X, Y, Z. Let's keep raising it. We'll get paid that's, eventually. That's wonderful. That's it's wonderful. Incredible. So, yeah, it's completely different. I don't know how better to – I don't know. I also talk a lot about foster kids because it's what I know and it's what I do, and they're – other, you know, like my team has agreed that's an important perspective that only I have, and I get to talk about it. <laughs> Is there other specific policies regarding that for you? Oh, um, where do you? Well, we can start with opioid. Opioid epidemic. Okay. Any, so, I mean, well, the, uh, the horrors of that is reasonably obvious. So, what would you do? What would you do for the opioid epidemic? I mean, what, what's the real cure for that, as far as policy? We, we need to move oxycontin and fentanyl to Schedule One. Ooh, that's not what I expected to hear. There's, okay. there's no, there's no, it, you know, what is it? How many people? I mean, we're killing, we're killing our communities. We are dying in droves. It's the worst epidemic that we've ever seen, and it's there are companies that are still profiting off of it, and they lied to get approved. Um, Purdue Pharma, who's the maker of Oxy claimed that the addiction rate was about 1%, and it was actually close to 40. Yeah. I mean, smoking, asbestos, global warming, mm-hmm. uh, opioids, all of these fields, you know, they spend decades denying, pretending, so they can profit as much as they can until it's inevitable they can't do it anymore. Here's the thing. The attorney general in West Virginia prosecuted Purdue, and they pled guilty. The, the, the top attorney, the CEO, 
and I think the CFO, all pled guilty to lying to federal regulators, doctors, families about the rate of addiction, and they paid a $618 million fine. And how much profit did they get? And a year later, they were granted patent protection, extended their patent protection. Uh Um, And then a year after that, I believe, the Food and Drug Administration approved the prescribing of OxyContin to children 11 to 16. Oh, well, of course. Of course. So... Okay, yeah, no, finish. It's just not hidden. I mean, this isn't hidden. No, it's the cost of doing business. They they got away with with it. With big tobacco, it was a secret. You know what I mean? Like, like we didn't have the paper that proved it. We have the paper that proves it. And there's still... Yeah, okay. it's more it's more blatant. It's more blatant. Yep. I mean, yep. it's the same stuff, but it's more blatant because because the because politics is more corrupt now. So it's it's okay to be more blatant. Right. Okay. All right. So so you said schedule one. That's not mm-hmm. what I expected. That's that's a really interesting response. So what is there I any other? I'd be willing to entertain schedule two if it was restricted to hospice. I would I would be certainly willing to. Entertain Schedule 2 if it was restricted to end-of-life hospice care because it, it just there's, there's, no, there's no good use for it, in my wow. humble okay, opinion. That's, that's very interesting. It's just, so any other policies related to opioid epidemic to really cure this, the disease of that? We need to invest in treatment as long as it takes to cure because 28 days is not sufficient. Um, we know but, well, from, that's, that's definitely a symptom, though. That's definitely dealing with a symptom, though. What well, policies the, people really that are already, the people that are already addicted, when they go through 28-day treatment, I mean, there's like an 8% success rate, right? So they're guaranteed to show back up in our prisons, show back up in our mental health facilities, show back up in our homes, right, trying to parent their kids until they, they relapse and they overdose again. So... I'm, yeah. I'm not denying. I'm not denying that that's that's critical. I'm not saying that that's not critical. But I'm but I'm saying, on top of the things that deal with per, people who are already suffering, what policies are necessary to prevent future people from suffering? Well, I think not making it, not having it available to be prescribed, is <laughs> like really the beginning. Um, okay. All right. Then, so maybe I think you're actually I think you're actually addressing what I was in my head was going to to say, which is not even, it's more nebulous because I'm not that familiar with it, but basically to stop the companies from being able to sell it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what even the thing is, but the companies are causing the problem because of profit. So maybe maybe your solution is a solution. Maybe that's just that. That's the only major thing. Now, we're going to have to deal with the millions of people who are already addicted well, right? yeah, you have to invest serious resources because there are some people... And the company should be bankrupt. bankrupted yes. if that's necessary because of they did it. That, you know, yeah. If there was, the, yeah. The $618 million in West Virginia, they spent through in a heartbeat trying to take care of people like you did in the last year. I mean, it, it, or, you know, How many yeah. billions did they, did they make off of? Oh, and now they're making Suboxone. Now they're making so, so same thing, just a different shape pill or something. Well, it's it's methadone, like methadone and suboxone are drugs that they use in in drug treatment facilities, right, to help okay. people step down from heroin. Well, don't think they're not making profit <clears throat> on that shit too. So these companies are actually profiting off of get, getting people addicted 
And then they're profiting off of them allegedly getting clean, too. Of course. Right. Of course. Right. I also think as part of this is marijuana, I think, should be pulled off the schedule and should be regulated like alcohol. I think it needs to be legalized, regulated, and taxed. I think uh-huh. it can be seen through state stores. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of good things happen when we decriminalize and, and legalize, regulate, and tax. Um, I mean, there are really good after effects in addition to the revenue that is generated. There's, you know, reduced rates of domestic violence. Um, people tend to self-medicate with, with um, psychotropic medications on a much lower um, degree to much lower degree. We've seen a lot of success with veterans with PTSD, um, with medical marijuana. So, I mean, there's, you know, it's a, there's, there's many pieces to it, but the opioid epidemic, again, has just demonstrated how, how, how pervasive the problem is of our crumbling communities and families. Because, you know, now, from the foster care perspective, we have children that we cannot place with family because the level of addiction has gone back two generations or three. There are no grandparents available. There are no aunts and uncles that aren't addicted. Wow. So then you have that burden on the social safety net, right, trying to support and take care of our foster kids that need families to step forward to be foster care providers. Then there's a burden on the school, right? The kids that come to school after spending the night with the police in their house because dad was trying to kill mom and they have dark circles under their eyes, they haven't eaten for three days, are showing up trying to learn in the same classroom as the kids who got a good night's sleep and a belly full of breakfast. And you have have teachers that are trying desperately to handle that those kids that aren't, you know, having having a stable home life are then taking tests and doing poorly. Our teachers are being measured by those tests. Our schools are being measured by those tests. Like, it's a many-headed hydra. Like, it, it reaches out and touches yeah, all of these different... Yeah, it's way farther than I've... I mean, I, I really don't know the issue that well at all, um, but I certainly didn't expect, you know, to reach out that far. And it's rural white America. That's what that's where we're dying. Predominantly, the life expectancy for a white man with a high school education or less is actually declining in America. Oh, yeah, I just heard that. That yes. the entire country's average age is lowered is being lowered because of the opioid epidemic. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and mind you, the white male with a high school education or less whose life expectancy is declining, was the only cohort that showed as, as great, as the greatest decline, and it was all for preventable reasons. Right. You know, it's, it, we're, we're dying. And, and that's not said to be dramatic. It's absolutely true. Right. And they're not, I mean, they're dealing with the, with the demand side, and they're not dealing with the supply side. I mean, a handful of states have passed laws that you can only prescribe three days' worth of oxy, right? California did three days. Ohio did five days. That's a step in the right direction because it's not illegal to over-prescribe. There's no limit on prescription. 
except in the states that have passed it. So we had a doctor here who prescribed, oh, God, someone estimated that he prescribed more Oxy um, in a year than the entire state of Delaware. Wow. And he ended up going to prison, but not for overprescribing because that's not illegal. He had sex with a patient for drugs, and he evaded taxes. That's what he was convicted on. So, okay, that's a broken system. But no one's, you know, no one's tackling it. And, you know, my humble opinion, anybody who's been sitting in Washington watching this epidemic blossom that hasn't done something about the supply side, I think this is derelict. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And it's campaign finance because... Exactly. Everything. It's the everything is campaign. Everything is campaign finance. Campaign finance, gerrymandering, and voters' rights. I think those yeah. are the three fundamental issues in this country. Everything yeah. else follows. And the only way we fix those is if we elect enough people that see that as a problem to be able to do something about it, which would require a serious overhaul. Now, or some a favor. I mean, we have a bunch of people retiring, so there's open seats. I just hope the people that are elected in their stead do something about it. Or there's going to be pitchforks in the street, or on there's a, a lawsuit that's going on as that probably has a very small chance of passing. But if it passes, if it if it succeeds, then all bets are off in a good way. There's a I'm not going to go too into this, but there's a candidate running in congressional district three who I'm um, no reasonably I know pretty well, and, and he is suing the entire country. And there's a three-judge panel that's going to be hearing this, and it's and it's uh, about an article of the Constitution that was ratified, but misunderstood through history. Someone copied it wrong, and people understood the copy as the truth, even though it was already passed. And that article stated that there really should be 6,000 congressmen, not 450. And if that happens, wow! If that happens then your congressional districts go down to about 60,000 instead of 700,000. And then, you know, you can buy off 450 people, but at least in the short term, you can't buy off 6,000. <laughs> so, you know, the ideal solution is electing people. The long shot is passing, is this uh, lawsuit succeeding? And then, you know, the only other option is people getting in the street and just saying enough is enough. Well, something's going to happen. I, I, Something's I hope going to happen because people are really, really suffering, and there's I only so much distraction that can that can you know keep them not focused on it. But I hope the people that would be likely to pick up the pitchfork, right? Because that's if nothing changes. I hope right. those people are doing something more to elect someone else now, because Agreed. you know what I mean. I just. To me, you know, the indivisible chapters that I see popping up everywhere, I think are wonderful, right? They're getting people engaged. They're protesting. It's great. Sometimes I go and I talk to them and they say, well, we want to be nonpartisan. Okay. So are you going to register people to vote? Are you going to work for a candidate? What are you going to do? Well, we want to remain nonpartisan. We just want to lift up our voices. Okay. But you do realize when you go protest in front of your congressman's office, he's not going to change his position because you did that, right? Like we've learned from history that he's 
you know, they're not going to change their position. Um, and putting all your hope in him maybe changing his position, I think is not the most efficient use of your time. Um, well, I, think it, I think indivisible is almost by definition resist. <clears throat> I think it is. The anti-Trump, you know, anti-Trump, just stopping whatever Trump wants to do. <clears throat> and I just don't, I mean, you know, out here, I know a lot of people, a lot of people that I know and I love and I care about voted for Donald Trump. Um, and they're not racist, hateful people, but they're struggling. And they're suffering. Yeah, and a lot of and, them, I think, would have voted for Bernie if he was the option, and he wasn't. Yeah. And so here we are, and when they turn on the news and listen to, you know, Trump's a terrible human being, he did terrible things, he's crude, he's, he called a country a shithole, they don't care. No, because more than they don't care. More than they don't care. I actually feel I actually have a, a passion about this. There, the do you watch the Young Turks? Yes. Okay. I that's my primary source of news. I'm, I'm you know that's my that and Jimmy Dore, and the Young Turks are, are hardcore progressives. I'm, I consider myself not just consider I am a hardcore progressive, and I think that you're significantly on that side as well. I believe, and my my feeling is very strongly that in a in a Republican district or a significant Republican district, uh, significantly Republican district, the more progressive you go, the bigger chance you have of winning, the bigger chance you have of peeling off 20%, 30% of the Trump voters because they want a dramatic change. That And the more progressive you are, the more dramatic that change is. The more center you are, it's just simply much closer to what already is. So, oh, oh yeah, so, so the Young Turks is hardcore progressive like I am. But one thing they do that I just so strongly disagree with is they disparage Trump at every step. Yep. They call Don't him stupid. That. They call him stupid. They call him a baby. They call him the biggest <laughs> idiot. I can't believe it. You know, loser Donald. And... The content of what they say, a lot of it is totally correct as far as he, this policy is bad or, or you know, this was a, a really big mistake and that kind of thing. But you are turning off yep. the very people yep. that you need to stand with. Yep. You are pushing away the people that you need to create a unit with, that you need to stand against the entrenched, you know, whatever, establishment. These are the people that need to join you, and you are pushing them away with these mm-hmm. We need them to vote for us. But you know, that's, that's something that I am particularly, myself, am particularly proud of with, with what, how I am a journalist and with how I am with Citizens Media TV. I go to Trump rallies, and I'm completely open that I'm a burning person. And we have discussions, and we have, you know, we have disagreements, but we leave happy. Yep. They keep inviting me back. And, you know, that's what it's supposed to be about. That's what it's supposed to be about. That's how you, you know, you talk to, you, uh, you disagree without being disagreeable. Right. And I don't remember how I, what triggered me to start this, but that really, you insult Trump, you lose that vote. Well, you're, you require that person to admit that they were wrong in order to support you. Why would you ever ask someone to do that? 
I, I completely understand why people voted for Donald Trump. I get it. I get it. So I'm not running against Donald Trump. I'm running against Glenn Thompson, who I think has, you know, supports terrible policies. That hurt us. And let me tell you about those. Because the president's the president. I mean, he's not going anywhere, right? I mean, got, you know, if, if they elect enough people to impeach, okay, that would be an interesting conversation because guess who we get? Pence or Ryan? I don't know if those are better alternatives, to be brutally honest. So, so let me ask you the same kind of thing at, a more, at your level. It would be very easy to make fun of Glenn Thompson for some stuff. Very easy. So how do you how do you take that philosophy to your opponent? Because he's done some things that could, you know, I mean, the minimum wage comment, which I will never forget. Right. So you know what I'm talking about? Right. No one People should charge the minimum. No one should minimum wage is a bad thing because no one should have the minimum. So therefore, no we should shouldn't have a minimum wage. The minimum. No one should strive for the minimum. That's his quote. No one should have to strive for the minimum. So therefore, we shouldn't have a minimum wage, which ends up making people have way less than that. I mean, that's just extraordinarily – I mean, it's so easy to make fun of that. So how do you – you know, obviously, you have to respect him because he has fans around the district, I guess. I don't – I mean, from the time I started this, I don't insult him. Um, I don't make fun of him. I don't disparage him because I don't think it's I, it's not how I raise my I'm raising my children to behave, right? And I think it's a lesson you learn once you're elected, right? I still sit on my school board. I there are some people that I really struggle to find a way to work with, but I don't mock them. I don't make you know I we we are equals here and we have our work to do. And I make my case and you make your case and whichever one wins, that's the policy and that's what we do. All right, well, let me push. Let me push you further, though. Do you mm-hmm. allow or enable anyone around you to do it? Not, not on our media. No. Um, sometimes people will post it on Facebook, and if I'm monitoring it, I'll come back. You know, I will post and say, "Look, you know, we're we're all together on the team to try to, you know, un, un you know, move them out of the seat, but we keep it." You know, we keep it above board. Um, I've only had to do that a handful of times, but I've seen it, and I've called it out, um, and they get it. And usually they write back by saying, sorry, you're right, I was just hot-headed, you know? Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's the whole thing with Super PACs. That's the whole thing with this new, do you know, this new DCCC so-called contract? You know about that? <clears throat> just briefly, the, so the DCCC put out a contract where if you want their support, you have to sign this contract, and this contract requires that you will not disparage your Democratic candidate, and you will spend 75% of your money on TV, and that you will, you will have a, you will have, you will have, you will have a unity party or whatever event after the election in order to not decrease your chances in the general. So, the the DCC, but so so, of course you know progressives can't criticize if they sign this contract and they agree to it. Whatever, it's not legally binding or whatever. But you can't insult your opponent if there's an incumbent. You're luckily not in this situation. There's no Democratic incumbent. But so you can't insult your Democratic incumbent, and they can't insult you. But their super PAC can, 
Right. So, you know, it's it's much more sinister well, than, on, than on its face. As if the DCCC is coming to help any district that isn't one of the hand-picked handful. I mean, that's just a joke. I mean, that's a joke. You know, the contract, you mean? Or, or? No, it's the DCCC, period. Oh. I mean, you know, they have a batting average that would make you retire from baseball. I mean, come on. <laughs> Like they're they're not. It's, it's sad, and and here and here's the thing that 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 makes it most that makes me most bitter. So when my mother graduated from from college, she went to the Democratic Campaign College. She went to D.C. for six weeks, and she was taught how to run campaigns. And when she went back to Florida, she was assigned to Lawton Child's senatorial campaign. And she was part of the campaign where he put on his boots because he had just come back from Vietnam and he walked the state of Florida. He won. And she would talk about it all the time that um, this is how it was built. We trained young people how to run campaigns. And then when people wanted to run, we sent them out to help to run campaigns. What a novel idea. We don't do that. We don't do that. We don't invest in young people and the knowledge they need. The not that means we have we have organizations that do, which are great. We have the you know the P Triple C, which is the Progressive yeah. Congressional Campaign Committee. We have Democracy for America. We have great organizations that are doing that, but they're not bodies on the ground on your campaign. Right. How did we lose that? I mean, that was in the seventies. Where did that go? Why did we stop investing in that? Well, I think it's obvious because it's obvious. Young, young people are not taking that anymore, and so therefore they're not the people to recruit if you want to stay in power. It's, it's just demoralizing to think that we had a system. I mean, and through that organization, we had a bench, right, because those the tree that you had a cadre of people, young people, that were capable of working the mayoral campaigns, school board campaigns, county commissioner campaigns, and then those people would move up and run for, you know, higher office, uh-huh. having known how to do it. We don't do that. We literally say, I went down to meet with the people at Emily's List after the 14 campaign. I remember your story about Emily's List. Yeah. They wouldn't return my phone call. And when I got down there, I met with a man, I think the only man on staff, who asked me, you know, can you can you raise $100,000 in a quarter? And when you do that, you call us, we'll call you back. That's exactly what you said that night mm-hmm. at the at the uh, FDR Park um, mm-hmm. on, in the grass. Yep. That's how our system works. We end up electing competent fundraisers who have no idea how to govern, and then we're surprised when they don't know how. Because they spend all their time fundraising. Right. Because they spend their time fundraising. <laughs> I mean, it, they create. We create that problem. Yep. During the debate in '16, I actually um, did the math with with Thompson. He spends. I mean, he spends about 60% of his time raising money. Like I did the math. I don't remember what the number was, but he raises like thirty-two thousand dollars a week. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I yeah. remember. Mm-hmm. How, how can I mean? With a straight face. And, of course, he's like, well, I don't spend that much time doing it. That was in your, there was something in the debate about – Yeah. There was something in the debate about a back and forth with, with 
the ridiculous of that. Uh, of that. Right, because if you aren't spending that much time to raise like thirty grand a week, then who the hell's giving you your money? Right, they're just giving you huge amounts of money if it doesn't take you a lot of time to do it. But that's the system. You know, you know, I, I, <clears throat> you're reminding me of something. <clears throat> I had two problems with Bernie. I had two my two major problems with Bernie. Which one? He's actually he has actually uh, done his biggest thing to relieve me of that. Tomorrow night, he is doing a town hall streamed by internet prominent internet organizations, including TYT. His uh, town hall for single payer is tomorrow night. Do you know about that? It didn't. But or maybe, maybe 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 it's a week or from Monday, but it's like real soon. It's either tomorrow or or a week from Monday, okay. and it's it's a town hall. And it's only on the internet. He asked CNN to do it. They didn't never got back to him because he wants to talk about real policy for as long as it takes. And so he decided to do it with TYT and and a couple other prominent internet uh, networks. And it's bypassing mainstream media. And my, one of my biggest problems with him was mainstream media does nothing but try and tear him down. Yet he goes on mainstream media all the time. And what he should be doing is going on TYT, going on The Real News, going on Democracy Now! so that we can create the new media and people gravitate towards it instead of going on CNN and trying to get through that funhouse of mirrors which they control to reach the people who are stuck and drooling watching that. But that's not the, that, that was a the digression because the real one, the other one is the one I wanted to mention to you, which is... Um, he never really called, not even really, he never called out the corruption, the questionable stuff, the, you know, you have to register six months before in New York that 200,000, 220,000 people were purged in New York the day of the election, the day of the week before the election, whatever it was, that Maine closed two-thirds of its of its uh, polling places, that Arizona, you know, the five hours of waiting and the closing of two-thirds of the polling places, and the horrific stuff that happened in Puerto Rico on voting on primary day. He never called it out. And I feel like, you know, you're, you're suggesting, and, and it's not like you can necessarily do this with, you know, it would come across badly, but calling out this this ridiculousness of raising $30,000 a week and whatever the specifics of that was is really suggesting the corruption. It's really, you know, this is corruption. It is legalized, but it is legalized corruption. It is legalized bribery. And you are, that is what you do. That is the foundation of who you are. Instead of dancing around this topic of like, wait a minute, how do you, how do you manage $30,000 in a week? Are you on the phone eight hours? You know, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, that's dancing around. You know, really calling it for what it, calling it for what it is instead of, you know, teasing this. Wait, how, if you do $30,000 in a week, does that mean you're on the phone 46 hours a day? You know, that kind of like teasing it. I don't know. That was way too much, but. Well, the tough thing, and, and it's, it's something that you only really appreciate once, once you run is there is so much, right? There's so much that's wrong. And what do you pick, right? Because no matter what you pick to talk about, someone else is going to want you to talk about something else. Yeah. So it's tough because 
There's so you know, much corruption. It's like, how do you prioritize? You right. Prioritize. So, so can we talk about, you know, with, with, with let's, let's picture the Trump voter, right? I'm talking to the Trump voter. If I start talking with them about money in politics, the gerrymander, and corruption, what they hear, what they could hear, sour grapes, right? The Democrats whine because they didn't, they didn't beat the system. Right. So we talk about the tax bill and what it's actually going to look like in their household. That's something that we can actually talk about, if that makes sense. So it's not that it's – I mean, I, I believe that all of the problems, all of the ills that our country is suffering can be remedied if we get money out of politics and we fix the districting. Like, yeah. those two things are required to solve all of it. Mm-hmm. Are we gonna are we gonna win those seats campaigning on that? No, because it doesn't affect people in the moment. Like, right. It's not it's not immediate. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. It's real for you. It's real for me. We look at it and go, that's it. That's the problem. But yeah. but you've you know, got to, most, people. But the general public needs to be educated on that, and they're so far away from that that you've got to work your way towards. And it. most the, most people that vote literally kind of chime in, you know, tune into the fact that an election is happening. And then they go vote. They are not invested in the minutia, you know, as the people, the wonky people that are either running or working on campaigns are. So, you know, to have that conversation, you got to go back and explain how the gerrymander, yeah. you know, the, the work of the gerrymander is happening. Even though North Carolina, three-judge panel, said it was unconstitutional. Yeah, and there's a Supreme, the Supreme Court has heard it or is hearing it or something I think, like that. Well, I think we're going to have to hear it because Pennsylvania has a case where the Commonwealth Court just said it was constitutional, which is going to be appealed up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So it's going to be interesting to see. But and know, there's the there's the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger one as well. Oh, I don't know. Is that, that, Supreme, there's, that, that already is or was or is about to be at the Supreme Court as well. I know Wisconsin was argued recently, but I don't think we have a decision in that one yet. So there's a, there's a couple of them going up, and... I don't think, as much as I vehemently disagree with some of the justices that are there, this isn't a partisan issue. Like, I don't think it's going to fall along the lines that, you know, like an abortion case would fall or a prisoner's rights case would fall. I think we're going to see some interesting divergence from their typical, what you would think would be their typical position. I could be wrong, but that's an optimism. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. It's it's like, you know, I see the final true foundation thing, but, you know, the voters need to be really slowly worked towards that. We need to start electing people who are capable of making good decisions that aren't bound by money. It sort of comes, I mean, it's just, that's it. Competent, competent legislators that are not reined in by being beholden to money. Yeah. Well, I hope you win again. Um, so when did it start really taking off? Um, probably mid-December is the day we did our big announcement. We drove across the district and um, did events. And the last event we did in State College, the room wasn't big enough to hold all the people. That's nice. It was nice. It was really nice. So... Now we're we're getting into petition season, so we're having you know just a bunch of events and traveling the district and talking with people and um, 
you know, the best part of the time I spend in a lot of these rooms are when people ask questions and we get to just have a really nice open engagement about issues. Um, and that's, the, that's where I get the best feedback. So it's good. It's good. We just got to keep doing the work. I mean, that's all it is. You got to keep doing the work. Yeah. And my, I don't know. I don't know. We'll just, all we can do is keep doing the work. And every day there's, you know, there's new work to be done, but it feels good to be doing something because, you know, what would the alternative be? Right. So, yeah. Well, what, okay, so why don't we end recording in a few minutes and then I have some questions for you after. But, okay. um, uh, yeah, you really get me going. <laughs> it's, it's great. I mean, I, it's great. You're, you're passionate and you really bring that up to me and it's nice. And I, I believe that our views are pretty compatible. I'm pretty sure that you're pretty close with, you know, Bernie's platform kind of the thing, probably tailored a little bit for a more. I will say this though. I recognize that it takes time to get there in this sense, in this sense. Um, when I first got on my school board, I was like a bull in a china shop, right? I went in, and I think these things need fixed. Well, if you don't have a coalition of people that can fix them, they don't get fixed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the nature of of a democracy is collaborative governance. So as much as I believe that our wage, you know, ideally should be raised to $15 an hour, which I think is still too low if you were to adjust it for inflation from the 60s, Mm-hmm. Um, I recognize that that frightens people. I mean, $15 is the top wage at our major employers here. That's the highest wage you earn after 10 or 15 years working. Mm-hmm. So the idea, you know, people here, oh, $15 minimum wage, wait a minute. So I'm going to be making the same thing that the guy at McDonald's is going to be making or they're going to get rid of my job. They're going to be, we, now, you and I know that that's not the case. Uh-huh. Right. So, and I also don't know what it would do to the economy to immediately go to 15 here. Well, you don't immediately go to 15, but, but no, I get, your, I get your point. They, and they titrate up, and I think that's the way to go is you move up and you move up. Um, you know, everywhere that's raised, it's an economic driver. More people have money in their pocket, and they spend it, and, you know, right. I'm there. But it's also not a thing I talk about out in the western part of this district because, I mean, Getting a job at Sheets for 1010 is a good job. So, but, I mean, it's a percentage. I mean, overall, it should be 15, but in your district, you know, it should go up X percent kind of a thing. I mean, it's, it's effectively the same thing. So. Yes. Yeah. But in the last four years, I know the major employer, um, my best, where my best friend works, it's a, it's a welding outfit. They've brought in, I think, four robots, Japanese robots that weld. Uh-huh. So they're, you know, they decrease their labor costs. People get laid off. They don't get hired back. So that person that was up at the top end making fifteen dollars an hour doesn't isn't needed anymore. Uh-huh. You know, it's very real. It's very, it's real, and it's frightening uh-huh. to people. So, you know, while when I get there, I'm going to do everything I can, and that's you know, single payer. Absolutely, we need to get to single payer. Would I not vote for a bill that um, puts the exchanges back in and funds them? Yeah, I'd vote for that because it's a step towards where we need to go. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, so I think 
there's a, there's a lot of issues like that where deep in my heart, I am as progressive as anyone, but I also recognize that the, how this works is collaborative governance. You need a coalition of people in order to get yourself to, you know, where you need to be. And if we can, my God, if we could get a majority of those people in, in the house, damn, let's do it. But mm-hmm. it's going to take time. All right. Right. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, I really hope you win. I hope that I can help you from far away as much as I can. Thank you so much for talking, Kara. Oh, it's a pleasure. I always enjoy it. Righteous indignation. It fuels us. I think it's great. Yep. Okay. We're going to go. Don't get off the phone. I have a couple things after to speak after recording, but but, uh, thank you and goodbye.